For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the peoples will take them and bring them to their place and the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you, the cedars of Lebanon saying, Since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you, all who were leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. All of, them sit, all of them will answer and say to you, You too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who lay the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert, and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nation lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out, away from your grave, like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit, like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial, because you have destroyed your land, you have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers never more be named. Prepare slaughter for the sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and posterity, declares the Lord. And I will make it a possession of the hedgehog. And pools of water, I will sweep it away with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. So a couple of years ago, I was coaching my son Johnny's soccer team, and part of the deal is you have to choose a name for the team, uh, which we did on the first day of practice. At the very end, uh, we decided to vote on names. Now, uh, after I uh, vetoed the name Blue Unicorns, we decided to settle in on Dominators, a, a subtle declaration of our planned victories and conquest. And so I was excited. We were going to have the Dominators. We were going to be a great team. And uh, we set out for our first game. And uh, after, after losing by eight goals, can I, can I remind you that I'm very competitive? We lost by eight 
goals. Uh, now, I know that we're not supposed to keep score, but everybody keeps score, and we lost by eight goals. And so, in the recesses of my soul, I'm starting to question whether or not I should be coaching soccer. Maybe I've missed my calling in life. Uh, I'm feeling like, man, I am a loser. I don't feel like dominators. I feel like the dominated. And in the midst of it, the coach from the other team comes over with a little twinkle in his eye and says, by the way, what's your team name? See, they would cheer for your team after the game as a sign of, of sportsmanship. But I knew what was coming. He, he said, what's your team name? I said, oh, the <clears throat> Dominators. And he said, I'm sorry, the what? The denominate, what, Denominators? I said, no, the, um, the <clears throat> Dominators. Look, we are the Dominators. And he said, oh, the Dominators, right. And so they run back, and as they start cheering for us, go Dominators! And laughing, I was thinking to myself, this is humiliating. We are obviously not the dominators. And, and you know, maybe uh, I started thinking about it, the Christian life can sort of feel like that sometimes. We know that we are Christians. Of course, Christ comes from the name for Messiah or, or King. And so we are sort of, in a sense, uh, children of the King, little kings, royalty. And yet, when we experience everyday life, a lot of times we can feel like we are not much of royalty, right? We can feel like life is pretty difficult, like the reality that we experience is not like the reality that we've been promised. We know we have a great future that's set ahead of us, that we've been promised, and yet the everyday experiences that we have tell us that we actually look a lot more like victims than victors. Well, we are actually uh, back in our Looking at Jesus series in the book of Isaiah, chapters 13 to 14 this morning, where we're going to see that the people of God have always had this kind of experience, but there's a day coming that it's not going to be this way anymore. Now, in chapters 13 to 14 in Isaiah, uh, there's actually a transition that's happening in Isaiah's book, where he moves from chapters 7 to 11, where he has been talking about uh, the, the way that God's grace triumphs in Zion, to the way that God's sovereignty actually plays out in the nations. In other words, God is not just a parochial God that's sort of living in this small town in Israel. Uh, he is a great God who is sovereign over all of history. And so, in the following chapters, in chapters 13 all the way to 27, we are given ten oracles that God gives against the nations. And through these oracles, God is speaking to the people of God about who they are, who He is, and what His plans for the future are. And what we're going to find today is our first oracle where we are going to be looking at Babylon. So if you look at Isaiah 13.1, you'll, you'll notice that he opens up saying, this is the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. And from here on out, through the rest of the chapters to 27, what we're going to find is that Isaiah is, is kind of zooming in and zooming out like you would on your, your camera phone, right? I mean, used to it was like zoom in, zoom out. Now it's like zoom in, zoom out, zoom in. And so we're going to see Isaiah do that a lot. He's going to zoom in to a, a immediate context of Assyria who is threatening Israel. And God promises that he's going to save them. And of course, we know that in 722 BC, uh, Assyria defeated Israel and saved Judah. So God did that. But then he's going to zoom out a little bit and move ahead to Babylon, this great nation who would come in and actually fulfill the judgment that God told Isaiah and Isaiah 6 would eventually come against Judah. And Judah would be destroyed by Babylon and led off into exile. 
That, of course, happened in 586 B.C. But then he he zooms out even a little bit more, even at the end of chapter 13 of Isaiah, where he says, and then the Medes are going to destroy the Babylonians. And then he's going to zoom way out. And he's going to say, and then there's coming a great day when God is going to judge the nations. And he is going to bring in his king. And that king will rule all over all people. And that is a great day that's coming where God is going to reverse the fortunes of his people and everything's going to change. And as we're reading through these chapters, what you're going to find is, is he's zooming in and out to the degree that sometimes you're looking at Babylon in history, but it looks like it has these big cosmic implications. And the reason is, is because God, I believe, is showing us that there is a way that he is working in history that is pointing towards the trustworthiness of his promises. And it also shows that God, while he wipes away evil, wicked powers like Babylon in history, one day he ultimately will wipe away every Babylon-like power. And so that's what we're going to find in this text as we go through it. It is an exciting text, a series of texts that we're going to be looking at. But here what we find is, in our text this morning, is Babylon is going to face this thing called the Day of the Lord. The day of the Lord where God would ultimately reverse the fortunes of all those submitted to God's good king. Now, here what we're going to find is Judah received this word about Babylon. And this is why one reason he's zooming in and out. They received this word about Babylon before Babylon was a blip on their radar. Judah wasn't concerned about Babylon at this point. But God knew that one day... Daniel and others in Judah would face Babylon, this great wicked nation, and the wickedness of the pompous king of Babylon face to face, and he wants them to be prepared. He wants them to hear, this is what's going to happen, they're going to see it happen, and then God's going to see, see, that's what I said would happen. Now catch this, I've said there's some glorious things that are coming, you need to trust God and wait on those. So in Isaiah 14, we'll see that amidst this taunt This taunt, they would need to be reminded, the taunt of this evil king, they would need to be reminded that one day, their great avenger Jesus would transform his conquered people into more than conquerors. There's a great day coming. This is our big idea. One day, our great avenger Jesus will transform, and this is true for us too, he will transform his conquered people into more than conquerors. That's the future that awaits us. So maybe it's important just from the outset to say, That's right, Iron Man isn't my favorite Avenger. Jesus is. I like superheroes. But Jesus is the God-man. He is unlike any other Avenger, and He is the one that we look forward to. Now, we'll see this in our text. We're going to be looking at Isaiah 14 this morning. So go ahead and open up your uh, your copy of God's Word to Isaiah 14, and we're going to look at those first three verses. Now, if you were to look at Isaiah 13, you'd notice that it ends with the Medes coming to judge Babylon after Babylon has come to judge Judah. And he's judging them for their pompous arrogance. But here he zooms out to the future of the new heavens and new earth in verses 1 to 3. He says, let me give you a picture of what's coming for the people of God amidst all of this chaos. He says this, for, in verse 1, for the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will choose again Israel and will set them in their own land. And sojourners will join with them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the peoples will take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captives, those who were their captives, and rule over those who oppressed them. What a promise. 
Here we find in these verses that God is going to undo all that has happened. See, this is the day when God's anger for Israel melts into compassion. I love Alec Moyer's description of this word for compassion. He describes it as the highly charged devotion of a mother for her children. Have you ever seen a mom and her devotion for her kids? I love it. Maybe you've seen a mom who's a lady who hasn't had a baby yet, right? And she's about to become a mom, and she's like, I just don't know if I'm going to be able to like, be excited about this kid. And then the baby comes, and she's like, I can't do anything but this baby anymore. This is like the best thing God's ever created. And that's exactly the kind of vision that we get here about God for his children. His compassion has been stirred up. And the main idea here in these verses is that God, in that compassion, moves and reverses the fortunes of his lowly, humble people. Those captives and slaves and servants. And he restores all that sin has taken. He calls, you'll notice, home the exiles to their land and his captives become captors. Do you see it? There's a reversal that takes place. Slaves become kings and king slaves. Israel and Judah, they're no longer separate and fighting, but a unified uh, people. And again, notice that non-Jews will join and attach themselves to God's kingdom, led by God's king, so that there is a universal unity that's taken over. Verse 3, promised rest. Rest from pain and turmoil and hard service. Now you know that pain and suffering that he speaks of in verse 3, those are things that entered into the world when in Genesis 3, man sinned against God. That's when suffering and pain entered the world. Turmoil, that second thing he mentions, points to the insecurity of losing one's own land. They will be secure in their land. They don't have to worry about home invasions anymore. And then finally, hard service recalls the experience of slaves. See, all of this envisions God finally redeeming His people from slavery to sin to exercise dominion over the earth as He created them to do. We find them in a new Eden where they have been freed from the effects of of the fall. And there God says he will exalt the humble. Those who were broken will be fixed. As I've been saying all along, the New Testament actually teaches that this kingdom that Isaiah looked for in Isaiah that he has promised him is already here, just not yet fully. In other words, we find in the Gospel of Mark as it opens in chapter 1, verse 15, John the Baptist is prophesying about the coming of Jesus, the King. And he says, a time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. The King is here, the kingdom is here. Hebrews 1.3 goes on to say, after making purifications for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is a level of being exalted that no human has ever seen. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. That's today. That's the current state of affairs. Jesus is King. Now, Jesus is the Christ, a word that actually means Messiah or anointed king. And by faith, we are told in the New Testament that we enter the rest of God and receive the Holy Spirit who tells us that we are sons and daughters of the living God. That is who we are in Christ. Do you you hear that? That's our present reality. Children of God. That's why Romans 8.37 speaks to suffering Christians about the glories that have been brought to them in the Holy Spirit. And they say this. This is where Paul says, you are not Sheep for the slaughter, knowing all these things, we are actually more than conquerors through Him who loved us. 
For you're more than conquerors right now through him who loved us in the past and continues to love us into the future. See, that's an already true reality. But history still reads faster than it happens, doesn't it? So we're reading through our Bible and we see these promises that are incredible that come to us about who we are in Christ, and yet we look around us and we see a broken world, and and we say to ourselves, it just seems like you've said there are these amazing truths that are true about us, but the reality lies to us and says there's no way these things are possible. As we await the return of Christ, we look all around and see injustice. And maybe you're like me who sometimes in your prayer life when you're alone, you're praying like Habakkuk, how long, O Lord? How long till you will come and bring justice to this unjust world? How long until you will come and fix and set things right? Right? It doesn't always feel like we are more than conquerors. It's a true reality. It doesn't feel like it. See, the struggles of your everyday life, our everyday lives, really, really can cause us to question whether or not the fullness of the kingdom will ever come. In other words, already starts to question the not yet. You know what I'm talking about? When Nicholas Cruz guns down 17 people in a Florida high school, mostly teenagers, for no reason, it doesn't feel like winning. And maybe you have all kinds of reasons that you don't feel like a conqueror today or more than a conqueror. You feel like something far less. It's hard to feel like a conqueror when your home is a mess or when you're feeling depressed, right? It's just hard. It's hard to feel like a a conqueror when you are in unrelenting pain or you feel like people are attacking your reputation and they've left it stained in such a way that people don't look at you the same anymore. It's hard to feel like a conqueror when you're abused or sins seem to have more control over you than you have over them. See, I, I believe that this is a message for us and this is a message that Judah would need to hear. Judah would need to be reminded of this future day as they encouraged, as they encountered great evil face to face as a king of Babylon who would seem to, to win over them and taunt them as he ran his victory lap. They would need to be reminded of a future that was coming that was much greater than the, the grossness of the day that was before them. And catch this, Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14, this chapter is a powerful encouragement for the lowly of heart who find today almost unbearable. This is an encouraging text for us. We need to understand it. The meek really shall inherit the earth, and God Himself will avenge our sins, those who have sinned against us greatly. A great day is coming when the humble will taunt the wicked, abusive powers of this world, like the king of Babylon, who seems to be above justice. There's coming a day. And this is a rallying call for God's kids who have experienced injustice. Our day, one day, King Jesus will interrupt his victory lap. And the taunted will become the taunters. God himself will avenge his meek people whose confidence is anchored in God's king. That day's coming. And here's what he says is going to happen on that day. This is a unique text. Uh, Notice, second, on that day, God himself will avenge his people. God himself will avenge his people. We see this in verses 4 to 8. Now in in verses 4 to 23, we find something unique happening. Isaiah is pointing God's people to a great day when the nations will join them and taunting the king of Babylon Babylon, who, who had taunted them. But take note of what they say. We learn something from this taunt that they are going to give to the king of Babylon. So look with me really quickly 
in verses uh, 4 to 8 at what he says, or what they say. It says, verse 3, When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypress rejoice at you, the cedars of Lebanon, saying, since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. See, notice here a couple of things that stand out. First, did you see that the wicked king of Babylon has relentlessly persecuted and terrorized the nations? In other words, God has a, an eye towards not just Judah and Israel, but the nations. And Israel is, is, is going to be declaring the fact that he was a kind of wickedness that had global impact. And it seems as though no one would have been able to hold him to account and that no one would bring him to justice. Uh, but there's a second thing that's interesting here in these verses, and it's this, that God, the great lumberjack, drops him like he's hot with one swing of his axe, which here's the Medes. It's like he looks like there's nothing that you can do to defeat this guy, and God comes in and he takes a mighty blow, and he's gone just like that. He sweeps the earth with him. Nothing before God himself. God himself avenges his people. And his people glorify God for his salvation. In other words, this isn't like a man-centered text. This is a God-centered text about the glory of a God who saves his people without them lifting an arm or flinching a muscle. God is glorious. See, God himself here is avenging them. And Isaiah encourages a people that is faced with exile that when it comes, that one day they will indeed rejoice over the death of the wicked king. God will save them. He will restore them. Now, at first blush, I don't know about you, but when I read a text like this, I think to myself, I don't know if I'm like completely easy with this picture of God. Like, Not that that matters, right? Hermeneutically, does not matter if you're okay with what you see God do and what he does. But in your heart, you might be thinking like, culturally, I just don't know if that's like where we're at. A God with this kind of strength and, and violence that goes in and takes down a wicked king. And maybe you're thinking this is a little too violent. This could be, I think, because our domesticated Western experiences have inoculated us to the experience of facing significant evil. Now, in recent days, we have been reminded through some of the assaults that have happened in our country, in, in Vegas, in schools, and elsewhere, that there is um, some insidious evil in our nation. But even there, we really don't know what to do with it. It could be because we have been in some ways domesticated away from a world that is full of evil. A world that is empowered um, by Satan, the prince of darkness, who is at odds with King Jesus. Well, there are others who are writing and thinking about God from a different perspective, and that is such a blessing because we get to hear and learn from others who haven't been, uh, have not been shaped in the ways that we have. They've been shaped by the Bible, but they've been in different cultural contexts. And one of the guys that um, writes about this that's helpful is Miroslav Volf, a Croatian theologian who has wrestled with questions like this from his different context, a nation that was savaged by Serbian forces. 
Now, in exclusion and embrace, he writes this. He says, it's easy for us, sitting in our pleasant living rooms in the West, to come up with high-minded theories of nonviolence. Our villages have not been burned. Our brothers have not been laid murdered. Our sisters have not been assaulted. Mine have. Therefore, I'm not held by the many pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. There is only one thing that will save us from becoming a vengeful people, which is the certainty that there is a just God. See, so in other words, if, if God does not set things right, and we can't trust that He does that, then how are we to restrain ourselves in the face of great evil? Now, you, you might not realize this, but justice is important. It is vital. It is critical to God. But all human attempts at justice pale in comparison to the justice that the Messiah brings. In other words, we need justice, but no justice that we bring will actually fully satisfy the longings of our hearts. That's why in the Old Testament, God set up and instituted lex talionis. That's the law that, you know, if somebody takes your eye, then you can take their eye. Now, you might be thinking, like, that's not fair. Like, I don't want anybody taking my eye. I like my eye. Even if I take your eye, I want to keep my eye. But in the context that God is speaking to in the Old Testament, you have to understand this was mercy. Because in that context, if you were to accidentally kill somebody's sister, then it was very possible and even probable that somebody would come after your sister, your brother, your mom, your dad, his wife. They would try to wipe you off the face of the earth. And what God says is that's not justice. That's not justice. And you know that in your human heart, there is a desire for justice. And even in this world, when you take the eye of someone who has taken your eye, not literally, but metaphorically, hopefully, that in those cases, that you still don't feel like things have fully been set right. Right? I mean, just set two kids, uh, you know, in, in a kitchen and give one a piece of candy and have the other kid eat his piece of candy. Do you think all he wants is candy back? He wants blood, right? Yeah, you got my sugar, I want your blood. Like, that's not fair. That's not the point. Point is that in our heart of hearts, we know that justice really doesn't satisfy what has been lost. All human efforts, they, they can't actually bring back what has been taken from us. We need something more. You know, when Randall Margraves, that dad, lunged at Dr. Larry Nasser for assaulting his three daughters, we, we heralded him as a hero because he was seeking justice. But the reality is, if he got that minute that he desired and took Nasser's life, he still would not be satisfied and his daughters would not have back what was taken. That's the reality of this world. Justice, hear me, it should be done on earth, but only heaven can ultimately make things right. This promise that God Himself will avenge us empowers us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. As Jesus says in Matthew 5.44. That's why Paul says in Romans 12.19-21. He says this, Beloved, speaking to those who love Christ, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty... Give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The only way that makes sense 
As if God promises to be our avenger as He does here. Only God can restore what has been lost in this broken world and bring true justice, the justice that our hearts long for. So God's final day, God's final day justice fuels our patience and our hope and love when we are confronted by injustices great and small every day. We need in-day, last-day justice to help us understand how to love every day. God will overcome evil with good. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, it looks like as I'm looking around me in my world that evil is winning. Now, I think that's exactly the experience that Babylon would introduce Judah to. Do you you remember this? Like, we read about what happens when Babylon takes over. And this is a wicked, scary nation that is really the picture of an evil world system throughout the rest of the Bible. This is a people who later would take Daniel. You remember Daniel? Yeah, the king of Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, sacked the temple, took Daniel and other leaders captive. He castrated them. He forced them to study the occult. He gave them new names honoring demon gods, tossed them into a fiery furnace, threw them to hungry lions, and threatened their lives if they didn't interpret a dream without being told what the dream would be. Just imagine facing that kind of evil. I mean, I know I've had a bad day, but I think that might be a worse day. How do you come back from something like that kind of wickedness face to face? Well, here it is. God promises that He will bring all wickedness and injustice to justice. Verses 9 to 23 give us a preview of the last day when ghost will taunt the pompous king who sought to ascend to heaven, but he landed in the pit of Sheol. He shot for heaven and landed in hell. That's the picture that we're given in verses 9 to 23. Notice here third that God will humiliate the proud, the proud king on the last day. He will humiliate him. Now Sheol is the Old Testament name for the place of both the righteous and the unrighteous. And those who were there were called shades. So here the dead taunt the king for a great reversal that triumphed over him on the last day. In other words, this shady king faces a shady future. I came up with that myself. Thank you. See, the powerful king first in verses 9 to 11 will become weak. Notice that in verses 9 to 11. There it says, Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come, and it rouses the shades to greet you, all who are leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones all who are kings of nations. All of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. You become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol and the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. Now in Isaiah 13, 19, Babylon is called the glory of the kingdoms. And so you would think that their king would be the greatest king in death. And yet here, this king and this nation that was powerful beyond imagination, here this king is seen as being as weak as the other kings and becomes worm food. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to the zoo and played with the worms there. My kids do that all the time. It grosses me out. It grosses me out because I know how worms work. They have really two functions in life. They eat and they poop. And so this man's future is to be eaten by worms and then pooped out. That's the future that he looks forward to. 
all of the glory that he wanted. And in the end, he's worm poop. That's his future. You know, pride always comes before the fall. You don't get much lower than that. But the heights of his pride, the the heights that he was seeking to soar to, really reveal just how low he has fallen. I mean, notice in verses 12 to 14, the king's heart desired to sit on God's throne. The king's heart desired to sit on God's throne. Uh, Look again uh, with me in Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 14, at what he says. He says, How, these kings, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. The most high God. I will make myself like him. Now, when we read these verses, I know that some of you um, probably are aware that uh, some look at these verses and think that this is speaking of Satan. Um, Actually, if you look in the KJV, they use the name Lucifer here. uh, But other versions have taken that out um, because that's not what the original language says. Uh, So if you look at church fathers, a lot of church fathers, um, Augustine and Tertullian, uh, both said that this is Satan. Uh, But other reformers like Matthew Henry and John Calvin thought otherwise. Uh, Calvin actually, when he was looking at this, said that those who say that it is Satan, it's risen from ignorance. He called Augustine ignorant. (sighs) That's bold. For the context plainly shows that it speaks of the king of Babylon. Now, I would have to humbly, as humbly as possible, agree with Calvin that that seems to be what's going on here. In fact, I like what Ronald Youngblood has to say, who famously quips, in this case, the devil is not in the details, right? This is in context speaking about the king of Babylon. But I do believe there is a satanic spirit about this man, this king, who says in his heart that he will ascend to the heavens and sit enthroned as most high on the Mount of Assembly. I believe there is a spirit, a, a, a satanic spirit about that. Now, if you're looking at that and you're wondering, what is this Mount of Assembly? Canaanites believed that the gods lived on Mount Zaphon. Now, this was kind of uh, their version of the Greeks' version of Zeus sitting upon Mount Olympus. So they had this, he had this vision of himself sitting amongst the gods, and not just sitting amongst them, but over them as the most high god on the mountain. This is the epitome of arrogance. Don't miss this, though. This really is, though, an extreme example of pride. It is also garden variety pride. And pride is a uniquely dangerous sin because it seeks to dethrone God. Take note. This abusive king saw himself as God sitting on his mountain, looking down on everyone else. I mean, you could see it. He is up high above, and all the little people are down here. And he, of course, is not like them. He is distinct from them, greater than them, and therefore his purposes, his ambitions, are more important than the desires and the good of those below them. That's why he can oppress and be violent towards those below him. It's because he almost sees himself as a creator over the creation. And brothers and sisters, as we fight 
pride in our hearts. We need to fight pride as though we are fighting for theism, for believing in God himself. Because the more that we begin to see ourselves as God in arrogance and in pride, you will notice that we will abuse all of those all around us. We will be like the gods of the Greeks and the Canaanites who sit on the mountains and they think about ways they can toy with the people below them and use and abuse them for their own purposes. And we can see this in all kinds of folks' lives. They, they are so proud that they are happy to abuse and use others. Let me just tell me, are there ways that maybe this morning you have found yourself, hopefully by the Holy Spirit revealing it to you through God's Word, that you are actually seeing yourself as sitting on a mountain above others in different contexts. And you are, are, are actually abusing others in the spheres of leadership that God has placed you. you know, I think that one of the ways that we can most quickly see whether or not Jesus is king is how we actually serve and lead others. So in the realms of authority that God has placed us in, and he has placed all of us either in realms where we are serving those whom God has placed in good authorities over us, or we actually authorities that are called to be Christ-like in the way that we lead others. And it's, it's, I think, often in those relationships that we actually see not whether or not we're able to identify good or bad leadership, but whether or not we truly are following Christ in submitting to those authorities. And so let me just ask you this morning to think a little bit about authority. We, we might just be kind of becoming in our own minds and hearts like this king, proud and arrogant, seeing ourselves above others. You can just see it. You sort of sitting on the mountain, right? With grapes in one hand, enjoying them, and the other hand, squashing people. All for your good. See, we need to love Jesus most to love others best. If we don't love Jesus most, then we will become like this king. So think about it. Elders of Trinity... You know, we are aiming, brothers, at a, a Christ-centered, brazen, happy humility. That's what we long to have for you as our, our people, the elders that have been trusted with you and our, and our leadership. Brothers, we need to make sure that we are constantly looking to Christ as the great shepherd. I want you all to know as a congregation that we are fully aware that we are under-shepherds of the great shepherd. We are broken. We are regularly reminded of the fact that we are weak and feeble and needy before Christ to lead you as Christ leads the church. I hope you know that. And brothers, we need to be reminded of that continuously. We need to model in our weakness confessing sins and seeking to obey Jesus. See, leadership isn't about making much of ourselves, but making much of Christ. If we begin to misuse leadership, we will do so because we start to see ourselves in this proud light like the king of Babylon. Men, what about you? Just come in close this morning. I want you, I want you to think about this. I, I see this many times and it breaks my heart, but let me just ask you, are you calling this morning, if you are married, your wife to submit to you while refusing to submit to Christ or the elders of your local church? Could it be that it's pride that's telling you that you are too great to submit to anyone? Have you become your own God? You know, I've actually seen, and this breaks my heart more than anything I can, I can tell you, I have seen men use the Bible to enslave others and their families while they themselves refuse to submit to the Word of God or to elders. I mean, if that's you, then you have become proud in a way that God is against. You need to humble yourself before the Lord and repent. And what about single ladies this morning? As you're thinking about 
perhaps a desire to be married someday. Now, let me encourage you. Look for a, a gainfully employed man. That's a good place to start. Amen. Yeah. Who looks to submit to King Jesus when no one is looking? You want a man who joyfully submits to imperfect, faithful leaders, to one who always lives as though he's under the gaze of Christ, a man who serves others. Those who are first shall be last, and those who are last shall be first, and those who love Jesus serve others as Christ laid down his life for the church. Do you know guys like that? And what single guys do you know who are this morning serving in sacrificial ways? You know a great way to find a good single guy? Who's serving in the nursery once a month? Great way. Maybe a selfish plug, right? Or maybe just wisdom. Like where's the guy who's willing to serve where nobody sees him and love kids? And where's the guy that actually likes kids? Or where's the guy who's willing to be with kids even though he doesn't like them and love them? Or what about bosses here? Are you caring for your employees in a way that shows that Christ is king? Not money, not your great name or growth or even the bottom line. You're not cheating or skimping around the lines so that you can make much of of your profit or much of your name or much of your company. You're not cheating to do so because you always are leading in a way that you understand that Christ is king. He is the one that you ultimately will have to give an account of your books to. No, don't leave victims in your wake for your pride. We must kill pride. And kids, did you know that, that the Bible actually says that, that we are to honor our parents? And you know what I hate about that verse? It doesn't say honor nice parents. It says honor your parents to the glory of God. Now look, if you, I get it. Some of you might have like parents that are, do not treat you well. And maybe you need to share with another Christian if you feel like that's over the line. But so many of us, we learn about submission to authority through our parents, and God calls us to honor them. We don't honor them because they are Jesus. We honor them because Jesus told us to honor them. So we need to honor our moms and our dads to the glory of God. And what about verses 15 to 23? Notice why it's important that we kill pride. It's because... The end of pride is bleak in verses 15 to 23. Look there with me and let's, let's look at these verses together. There he says, but you, you, this proud king, you were brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. And those who see will, you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook the kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out away from your grave. Like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit, like a dead body trampled underfoot, you will not be joined with them in burial, because you have destroyed your land. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers never more be named." Prepare slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of this world with cities. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and posterity, declares the Lord. And I will make it a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water, and I will sweep it with a broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. In other words, once God chops down the tree, 
he sweeps away to clean up his mess, and it is gone forevermore. And what a picture. Here's the highlight of the end of this great king. Lesser kings have a tomb, but he's thrown into an unmarked grave clothed with the slain as people unconsciously trample over his unnamed grave. They don't even know of him anymore. His fathers, they were wicked, and they got graves, but not him. He receives the full wrath of God for his sins and those of his fathers to the third and fourth generation. He will not fill the earth with image bearers because in verse 22, God himself rises against this king and cuts off his name, his remnant, his descendants, and his posterity. What a tragic end for this king who sought to exalt himself to heaven like Babel building their tower. And here the king of Babylon has fallen. That's kind of sad, isn't it? Sad for him. But here's the good news. God's Messiah, Jesus, who is the Christ, didn't come swagging and bragging about His greatness. He didn't seek to ascend to heaven to make much of Himself. He descended from His throne in heaven to humble Himself as our Creator King in the form of human flesh. Jesus entered into our broken and godless world and submitted himself to another Babylon known as Rome who sought to kill our humble king born in a manger to a no-account family. And Paul records a song for us about how different King Jesus is from this king of Babylon. See, this king, our king, humbled himself, willingly went low, and God exalted him high above every king. And what a different image than we have of this king of Babylon. And here's what it says, what Paul says of him in Philippians 2, 5 to 11. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at that name every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. All these ghosts. And and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see it? What a different response Jesus gets. Here God says Jesus' humiliation and exaltation are an example of how we should live the Christian life. Jesus does not seek to grasp the throne of heaven. He actually willingly stepped down from it to sacrifice himself for sinners like you and me, becoming a curse on the cross for us. And he did not exalt himself here. No, it says God the Father highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, such that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. He is on the throne to the glory of God the Father. And here's what that means. If you're a non-Christian this morning, I hope you're encouraged to know that God really is, He really is moved to justice and He will set things right. So maybe today you're thinking to yourself, there are so many wrongs in your life, you can't imagine turning to God and maybe you're blaming God for those wrongs and you just didn't know that actually this is part of God's grand plan. One day He is going to set all things right, but here's the the point that you need to deal with. God sets things right for those who have made Jesus their king. And today, you need to put your faith in Christ. By faith, you become a part of the kingdom of God before the kingdom of God fully arrives. 
So if you've not done that today and you want hope on this great day, when this great king comes, King Jesus, then don't leave without putting your faith in Christ. And I would love to talk to you about what that looks like after the service. But Christian, be encouraged. These verses should thrill and enliven your soul if you are one who has been a victim of a wicked power and authority in your life. If you've been abused and you're thinking to yourself, how could God let that happen? The message of Isaiah 14 is, He is going to set things right. Trust Him. If you're one who is looking around you at the world and the the heinous crimes of the powerful, and you're thinking to yourself, how could God let that happen? I don't believe that God could let that happen. Can God really bring justice? The answer of Isaiah 14 is, justice is coming. All things will be set right. All will be judged for their sins. But until then, let us all pray for justice. Let us pray for it when we see evil. When we see evil that scares us, like ISIS. Let us pray that God would bring justice quickly. But let us also love sacrificially serving others, knowing that one day Christ will set all things right. And because of that, we can love like Jesus loves. Let's pray.